Hi, I'm Dr. Marsha, and this is the Self-Care Chronicle. As a licensed psychologist, I know that I need to practice good self-care to maintain my mental wellness. But maintaining my self-care routine can be a struggle when things get hectic. So I started reaching out to my peers to ask them about their experiences with self-care, and I learned that many of my fellow mental health professionals have similar experiences. Join me each week as I connect with a fellow mental health professional to discuss the challenges of managing our own mental wellness in the midst of a pandemic, social unrest, increasing demand for our services, and a struggle to embrace a me-first ideology, which sometimes feels wrong to a helping professional. Welcome to the Self-Care Chronicle. Welcome back to the Self-Care Chronicle. A while back, I started reaching out to API-identifying clinicians in the hopes of expanding the conversation around the unique factors involved in self-care and maintaining mental wellness for BIPOC-identifying mental health professionals. If you haven't already checked out my first interview along these lines, please add episode 20 of the Self-Care Chronicle to your podcast queue. This week, we're back with part one of my two-part interview with licensed psychologist Dr. Emily Hu. Dr. Hu specializes in treating trauma and addictions, and her work encompasses themes of resilience, strength, social support, and finding and unapologetically living one's genuine true self. It was a pleasure to connect with Dr. Hu, and we got into so many topics related to self-care, mental health, and differing aspects of the BIPOC experience with those things that I decided to break our interview into two parts. Please be sure to check out part one of this interview on YouTube. The link to the video is in the show notes and can also be found at drmarshabrown.com. And welcome, Dr. Emily Hu. Thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So let's go ahead and jump right in. What was your journey into psychology? First, how did you decide to become a psychologist? And once you decided you were going to be a psychologist, what was your journey to serving the population that you now specialize in serving? Yeah, sure. So I feel like there's kind of a a right way and a wrong way to answer that question um, in terms of there's there's the typical answer of really wanting to help other people and really wanting to just help others in terms of their their journey towards being the people that they want to be, feeling like I've always been a good listener, having other people give me that feedback. And and yes, that had happened to me throughout my life. But honestly, at the end of the day, I kind of stumbled into psychology as just one of many paths that I was trying to figure out for myself. So basically around undergrad, I was trying to figure out my major. I was trying so many different classes and stuff just to kind of see what stuck with me. And at the end of it, maybe two years in or something like that, I was being, I was feeling a little bit pressure to declare my major. And I was like, well, you know, I don't hate psychology. I didn't hate any of those classes. So I might as well try it and see. And then after I declared the major and I started to actually take more advanced classes in neuropsychology and clinical abnormal psych, social, all that stuff, I very quickly discovered this is a really interesting field. And then I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to go into after that in terms of my specialization, but I was actually really lucky. My last year of undergrad, I attended a meeting or a conference of the Western Psychological Association, I think it was in Portland, Oregon that year. And I happened to just kind of walk into a uh, panel that was being put on by a VA psychologist who was talking about PTSD and the veteran population. And I just kind of wandered into that panel thinking that it was 
was interesting. And I came out thinking to myself, this is really what I want to do. Like, I really want to work with people who have experienced hurt, whom the world has hurt, and I want to help them heal, however, whatever that takes or whatever form um, I can help them with. So initially, then I started out working with active duty service members and veterans. That was the beginning of my career anyway. And then very soon, I decided that it was I could also kind of expand my my clinical knowledge as well as my reach and influence and my learning by working with the general population as well. So I went into private practice with Thrive Psychology in Los Angeles, and that's where I am right now. That's interesting. That's a very fascinating journey. Can you talk a little bit about what is the most stressful thing about your job? Yeah, I would say that um, probably the most stressful part of my job is really managing a caseload full of clients who, at the end of the day, they kind of remind me of myself. And this was not something that I ended up struggling with very much when I was working with veterans and active duty service members. I'm a civilian. I'm a woman. I'm young. That tends to be relatively different for the most part from that particular population. But now that I work at Thrive, our primary clientele is women who are working, who are young professionals, who are successful, driven, motivated, high achieving. And I'm starting to feel like these are a lot of the characteristics that I carry and that I consider to be strengths for myself. And so I think in terms of working with this client population, it's been really interesting because there have been so many times when I've sat in session with one of my clients who's telling me about a struggle or an issue that she's having. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, oh, like I have that struggle sometimes too. I have that issue sometimes too. And it's actually kind of nice because oftentimes I can be like, oh, you know what? Like this works for me and this has worked for my other clients who are like me. Why don't I try this with you and see how that works with you? But other times it can feel almost as if somebody is without your consent, holding up a mirror to you and being like, these are all the aspects of you that you haven't looked at in a while that you don't spend all your time introspecting about or thinking about. Um, but here it is. And that to me can be a little bit stressful in terms of just feeling like I'm being reflected back to myself in my clients for the most part throughout my entire caseload and having to manage that on top of creating a space that continues to be really safe and secure and vulnerable for them. So I would say that's probably the most stressful part of my job. That's really interesting. And and yeah, a really good point, because I think you're right when you're serving a population that you don't have necessarily a great deal in common with, you don't have those issues. I think for a lot of us, we do find some commonality in any human being we're sitting across from. But when you have so many differences, it's not really as much like a mirror. But if you have a lot of people that have very similar characteristics to you, you can start to notice similarities and patterns and things and then say, wait a second. This yeah. looks very familiar. Interesting. It is really, I was just going to say, it is really interesting if you look at my caseload to see how many uh, of my clients are East Asian, women in their 20s to 30s, women who are high achieving, women who are exploring their relationships with their parents, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's just really interesting to see that and be like, oh, wow, you know, your, your caseload really tends to reflect you, I think. Can you talk a little bit about self-care, just what it means for you and how you practice it, if you have any go-to methods, anything like that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I realize that this is going to sound a little bit strange, but the first aspect of my self-care is actually self-compassion. And what I mean by that is I do have a self-care routine. I do have certain activities that I do that can that I consider to be refreshing and sort of recharging my tank and really important for me to continue to be a good therapist and a good friend and a good family member and stuff like that. But I think the first thing that I always practice is self-compassion. So I check in with myself every day, multiple times a day. And I'm sort of like, well, Emily, like, what have you got today? What have you got in your tank? After you come off of a long shift, um, you know, having seen seven clients and a bunch of meetings and stuff like that, and you have a headache and you're tired and you just want to like sit and vegetate for a little while. Do you have energy to actually go and do some self-care activities? No? Well, maybe that's okay then. Um, You're doing exactly what you need to do in order to feel better. And if that means that you end up sitting down and like watching Netflix for a couple of hours, or you end up sitting down and actually eating, finishing up that bag of popcorn, um, or you end up sitting on your phone for half an hour, not really doing anything, just scrolling through Reddit or something like that. That doesn't mean that you're not doing self-care. That doesn't mean that you're not doing things right or um, addressing your recovery from this day in the correct way you're allowed to do whatever you need to do in order to recharge. And if that means doing nothing, or if that means not doing your typical self-care activities, then that's okay. So for me, practicing that self-compassion first and foremost is so important. And just giving myself permission to like not do self-care, if that makes sense, um, or my, not my typical form of self-care. Um, I feel like it's just such an important first step because otherwise I feel like I would be feeling so pressured and I would be like, well, you know, I have to do this for half an hour and I have to do this after that for 45 minutes. Otherwise I won't feel recharged. And that's too much pressure between you and me. But on those days when I do check in with myself and I'm like, yes, I have enough resources, I have a few different things that I really like to do. And thankfully, what I found to be really helpful is none of them have anything to do with psychology or therapy. So for instance, I really like getting outside. Sometimes that can be something as simple as going out into my balcony and like looking at my plants, you know, and like watering them and looking at the flowers and being like, how are you all doing today? I do talk to my plants. Don't say anything about that. Or it can be going out for a hike on the weekends or going for a walk or something like that. Just kind of getting some sunlight, some fresh air, a little bit of recharging that way. The gyms are slowly but surely reopening here. So, and um, I'm vaccinated. I finished my vaccination round about a month or two ago. Um, And so rock climbing has always been a passion of mine. Um, It was something I got into a few years ago and it's something that I really enjoy. So with the gym slowly but surely reopening over the last few weeks, I've been trying to get out there a little bit more. And whether that's meeting up with friends or just going by myself, it's always nice to kind of go there, get up on the wall a few times and be like, oh, you know, I knocked out this nice route. Oh, I'm feeling a little sore. That's pretty good. And kind of go home after that. Um, I also enjoy creative writing. And again, my writing has nothing whatsoever to do with psychology or anything like that. I write sci-fi fantasy. And so every once in a while, yeah, I'll sit down and I'll, uh, you know, work on a short story or something like that, or I'll try to make a little bit of progress on my novel. Very slow going. But, you know, doing that, that's always really recharging and that's really fun for me. And occasionally just like getting creative in other ways, like for instance, trying out new recipes. I've been teaching myself to bake over quarantine. I'm um, I'm not going to go 
on to, you know, like the Great British Bake Off anytime soon. But <laughs> um, at the very least, I can make some muffins. I can make some cookies and stuff <laughs> like that. And, you know, just like trying some different recipes here and there, making a mess of my kitchen and then being like, you know, I have something good to show at the end of it. Stuff like that can actually be really nice for me. So those are kind of the things that I like to do that are recharging and whether they involve socializing with other people, that's always a bonus. But the nice thing is I can always do them by myself too, which I think is really nice. So that's primarily what I do for self-care. I love it. I absolutely love it. First, I, I would like to say that I love the the focus on self-compassion as the first part of self-care. I, I want to say that I do not in any way think that's strange. I think that's so important. I think a lot of times we do put so much pressure on ourselves to do certain things in a certain order for a certain amount of time. And when we don't do them the way we think we should have done them, we beat ourselves up or we're disappointed or we feel guilty. And so, you know, I, I think you're right. That's completely against self-care. So yeah. that first level of self-compassion and deciding, you know, do I have the energy right now to get up and do some activity, whatever it may be? Yeah. No, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I, I absolutely, I love that. Can you talk a little bit about we're all in this sort of new normal, I guess we'll call it with 2020 and 2020. One, just all the things that have been happening, starting out with the pandemic and then leading into watching unarmed Black citizens be murdered in the streets. You're seeing that over and over on TV. And then you're seeing the the protests for the racial injustice. And then we're seeing the terror attack on the Capitol. And then through this entire time, there's been this trajectory of this increasingly violent and shocking random attacks on Asians mm -hmm. and you just that's really difficult to wrap one's head around. So I was just yeah. wondering how whether it has affected you as an Asian American mental health professional. And if so, how has it impacted you specifically in regards to mental health? Yeah, that is such a good question. And yeah, thank you for recognizing the fact that it's not just the pandemic. Um, it, it's not just a, a global trauma of this, this um, pandemic that is running all over the world. It is other people or just people that you and I relate to or like who look like you and I who are getting killed or getting attacked and getting spit on and all these other things for no reason other than the way that they look and the fact that they look like you and I do. Right. And I think that's so important to recognize that against the background of this greater global trauma, there is trauma happening every day for people of color, especially living here and having to watch that every day, having to hear people talk about that every day, having to process our own individual emotions about that and process it with our clients as well. I think it's such an important issue and I'm so glad that you're making space for it. Um, and I think like for me anyway, I mean, with regards specifically, more specifically to the anti-Asian hate crimes that have been happening. I mean, that's been ongoing since even before the start of the pandemic, but especially with some of the rhetoric that was coming from the previous administration and is continuing to go around. And also just in more recent months, the very significant uptick in these attacks and also recognizing that they're happening not in like the places that, you know, we would expect. They're not in like 
the far-off corners of the red states or something like that. They're happening in big metropolitan areas. They're happening in New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles, all these places that you would think are hubs of liberalism and hubs of acceptance and you know all, all that stuff. It's really discouraging to see these attacks and to see these these news stories coming out all the time. And I think as an Asian American mental health professional, one of the things that I've kind of noticed, especially over the last few months, is I've noticed that a lot of the the feelings and the um, struggles that my clients, my Asian American clients are talking about in session there are things that I'm like feeling myself. So things like uh, grief, things like anger and confusion, especially after that most recent terrorist attack in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's a lot of sadness and there's also a lot of fear. So like, for instance, you know, my clients are talking about how they're going out into public places and they're... Um, thinking to themselves, like, you know, is this the, is this the day that I get spat on? Is this the day that someone tries to run over me with their car? Is this the day that somebody hits me for no reason and knocks me down on the sidewalk? Or alternatively, is this the day that my mom or my grandmother or my dad or my grandfather gets attacked in this way? Or, you know, my brother, my sister, my daughter, my son, like all these, um, all these different sort of familial relationships. And they're telling me that. And I'm like, yeah, I had that thought yesterday, you know, like walking down the sidewalk being like, you know, is there enough clearance between, uh, is there enough clearance in this sidewalk so that I'll, I will have enough, um, enough lead time or enough notice uh, to see like if a car is veering towards me to run out of the way? for instance. And it's really, really sad that we have to have these particular thoughts. And it's really sad that we have these fears and these anxieties and, and this confusion that kind of follows us around. But I think that given the, the nature of the attacks and given kind of the unpredictability and, as you mentioned, the vitriol and the violence and the obvious, really, really discombobulating hate out there, I think, unfortunately, it's a feeling that's expected and it's a feeling that's normal. Um, now, for me, what I found is when I'm experiencing these particular feelings or issues, especially when it comes to the fear, what's helpful for me is to step back from things for a little bit. And that doesn't mean that I like, you know, burrow into a rabbit hole um, and I never come out again. But maybe it means that, you know, I take a little bit of a quieter afternoon. I don't follow the news. I don't go on social media or anything like that. I basically tell myself, you know, if I miss out on a few hours of the latest news, it, I'm not going to miss anything important. Like I'm not going to um, all of a sudden be in any more or less danger than I am. My family members are not going to be in any more or less danger than I am if I check out from the news for a few hours. So let me just get that for myself. Take a breath, take a nap, take a breather, whatever it is that I need. Um, and remind myself that, you know, for instance, I carry pepper spray in my purse um, so I can defend myself if needed. But otherwise, I am not going to let these violent attacks or the fear of that keep me from doing what I want to do. So I'm still going to go out. I'm still going to go climbing. I'm still going to go outside and go on hikes. I'm still going to go to the grocery store. I'm still going to go hang out with my friends. Um, because like the instant that I really dive into that rabbit hole and I, I never come out again and I never leave my house or anything like that, then these people who are spreading that hate, they've officially won. So I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm not going to give them that satisfaction, shall we say. I'm going to be careful and I'm going to be street smart, but at the same time, I'm not going to lose, if that makes sense. Um, and then I think uh, with regards to the, the anger and the confusion, which 
I would argue is relatively new for our community of Asian Americans. I think it's not been for uh, other people of color for the most part, but for us, we've been model minority for so long. We've been told to be good and to be quiet and to uh, assimilate and to not to put too fine a point on it, be as white as possible, basically, um, you know, ever since we, we came here. Because uh, most of our most of us are recent immigrants. I'm a recent immigrant, um, and so we we're not used to. I think um, having a voice for anger and having a voice for confusion in this way. But I think that we're also not that used to being so blatantly attacked in this way either. Um, and so I think for many of us, we're reckoning with this anger for the first time, maybe in a long time, or maybe in our entire lives. And for me, for my mental health, I don't love feeling angry like this all the time. It feels alien. It feels not like me. It feels, I hesitate to use the word wrong because I know that it's not. I know that it's valid, but it just feels just different from the way that I usually do feel um, as an Asian American woman. Um, And so for me, you know, holding this anger inside of me, I've had to be really thoughtful about what I do with it. I've had to be really thoughtful about the space that I make for it. I've had to be thoughtful about the outlets that I choose for it. I've had to be thoughtful about who I talk to about it. And what I found has been just the most helpful thing is um, being really being really picky about who I talk to about it. So for instance, I talk to it primarily with other therapist friends who are also Asian American, or I talk about it with very, very good close friends. Um, who are able to hear me and are able to hold space for me um, and who I know will be able to reflect and validate some of that anger for me, which is probably all that I need. But I don't talk about it, um, for instance, with my family members. I don't talk about it with my parents um, because I know that what I'm going to get, even though it'll be well-intentioned, is more of the messaging of, well, you know, you shouldn't be angry about this. Don't be angry. Be nice. Be quiet. And all that other messaging. And I don't think that that's helpful. So I think finding a very safe space and being really thoughtful about it, that's been the most helpful thing for me um, in terms of holding that anger that I think, well, I'm definitely feeling and that I think a lot of um, our community, our Asian American community is really feeling right now as well. Hey there, everybody. It's Dr. Marsha. I'm just popping on to remind you that this is part one of a two-part episode with Dr. Emily Hu. Be sure to check out the video of part one, the interview that you just heard, on my YouTube channel. See you next week for part two. Thank you for joining me for the Self-Care Chronicle. If you enjoyed today's show, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Self-Care Chronicle on your favorite podcast platform. To find out more about today's episode, or to listen to additional episodes, visit drmarshabrown.com. See you next time.